Our Old Covenant reading this evening is from 2 Chronicles 6, verse 12, to chapter 7, verse 3. The word of the Lord. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands. Solomon had made a bronze platform, five cubits long, five cubits wide, and three cubits high, and it set set it in the court, and he stood on it. Then he knelt on his knees in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven and said, O Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven or on earth, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart, who have kept with your servant David, my father, what you declared to him. You spoke with your mouth, and with your hand have fulfilled it this day. Now therefore, O Lord, God of Israel, keep for your servant David, my father, what you have promised him, saying, You shall not lack a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel, if only your sons pay close attention to their way, to walk in my law as you have walked before me. Now therefore, O Lord, God of Israel, Let your word be confirmed, which you have spoken to your servant David. But will God indeed dwell with man on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea, O Lord my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant Praise before you, that your eyes may be open day and night toward this house, the place where you have promised to set your name, that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers toward this place, and listen to the pleas of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place, and listen from heaven your dwelling, and when you hear, forgive. If a man sins against his neighbor and is made to take an oath, and comes and swears his oath before your altar in this house, then hear from heaven and act and judge with your servant, judge your servants, repaying the guilty by bringing his conduct on his own head and vindicating the righteous by rewarding him according to his righteousness. If your people Israel are defeated before the enemy because they have sinned against you and they turn again and acknowledge your name and pray and plead with you in this house, Then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your people, Israel, and bring them again to the land that you gave to them and to their fathers. When heaven is shut up and there is no rain because they, they have sinned against you, if they pray toward this place and acknowledge your name and turn from their sin when you afflict them, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people, Israel, when you teach them the good way in which they should walk, and grant rain upon your land, which you have given to your people as an inheritance. If there is famine in the land, if there is pestilence, or blight, or mildew, or locust, or caterpillar, if their enemies besiege them in the land at their gates, whatever plague, whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer, whatever plea is made by any man, or by all your people Israel, each knowing his own affliction, and his own sorrow, and stretching out his hands toward this plate, this house. 
Then hear from heaven your dwelling place, and forgive, and render to each whose heart you know, according to all his ways. For you, you only, know the hearts of the children of mankind, that they may fear you and walk in your ways all the days that they live in the land that you gave to our fathers. Likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people Israel comes from a far country for the sake of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm, when he comes and prays toward this house, hear from heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your people Israel and that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. If your people go out to go to battle against their enemies, by whatever way you shall send them, and they pray to you toward this city that you have chosen and the house that I have built for your name, then hear from heaven their prayer and their plea and maintain their cause. If they sin against you, but there is no one who does not sin, and you are angry with them, and give them to an enemy, so that they are carried away captive to a land far or near, yet if they turn their heart in the land to which they have been carried captive, and repent, and plead with you in the land of their captivity, saying, We have sinned, and acted perversely and wickedly, if they repent with all their mind, and with all their heart, in the land of their captivity, to which they, are, they were carried captive, and pray toward their land, which you gave to their fathers, the city that you have chosen, and the house that I have built for your name, then hear from heaven your dwelling place, their prayer and their pleas, and maintain their cause, and forgive your people who have sinned against you. Now, O oh my God, let your ears be open, and your, eye, your eyes be open, and your ears attentive to the prayer of this place. And now arise, O Lord God, and go to your resting place, you in the ark of your might. Let your priests, O Lord God, be clothed with salvation, and let your saints rejoice in your goodness. O Lord God, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. Remember your steadfast love for David, your servant. As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, Fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. When all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshiped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, For he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. The New Covenant reading this evening is from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12 to 20. Also the word of the Lord. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. 
And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, the two will become one flesh. For he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not again come under the yoke of bondage. Now, that's what Paul says to the church in Galatia, which is being racked by legalism. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not again come under the yoke of bondage. On the other hand, the author of Hebrews tells us this. Strive for peace with everyone and for that holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Uh, We've been going through uh, Matthew in the morning. We just recently finished the Sermon on the Mount. And we've seen these sorts of very strong calls for holiness in our lives from our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Indeed, he says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. The Lord does call us to radical holiness, yet he also calls us away from that legalism of man-made rules, which are of absolutely no value in overcoming the lusts of the flesh. A great deal of the Christian life is coming to hold both of these things together. It is for us to celebrate the true freedom that we now have in Jesus Christ, while also simultaneously zealously pursuing holiness, pursuing the Lord, seeking in the power of the Holy Spirit to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. Please mark this well. The well-lived Christian life is not finding a balance between these two different goals. These are not opposite ends of the spectrum where you want a little bit of legalism and a little bit of holiness in your life. These two principles run next to each other, and we are called to celebrate both of them. The well-lived Christian life is found by simultaneously celebrating our Christian liberty while joyfully and zealously pursuing genuine holiness as a way of life. Now, the church in Galatia had fallen off the road the Lord wants us to walk on into the ditch of legalism. But when we come to the church in Corinth, they have fallen off into the ditch on the other side of the road, which we call antinomianism. And since the church in North America is increasingly being given over to antinomianism, I want to just say a bit about what exactly it is. Uh, Antinomianism uh, quite literally means against the law. The idea is is that 
These are people that have no regard for the law of God in their own lives. Some have no regard in theory. Many have no regard in practice. But even as I say it that way, it sounds a bit too abstract. It would be better to say that antinomians have no regard for the God who's given us the law. Because at the heart of antinomianism is an autonomy, that is a a personal claim to be a law unto myself, that I don't need to follow external rules, even if they're given by God. Rather, what I do is I simply choose on my own judgment, my own wisdom, and my own desires to live as I like. That is, I am the captain of my own soul and the captain of my own destiny. Oddly enough, both in ancient Corinth and in the modern church in North America, instead of being ashamed of their lawlessness, antinomians tend to be puffed up with pride, as though their not having to follow rules shows how sophisticated they are. But they are more mature than, you know, those fundamentalists who have to have all these rules in order to pursue holiness before God. In fact, um, this being puffed up with, uh, in terms of the antinomians um, often includes specifically the issue that is going on right here in Corinth. Uh, they don't consider themselves to be hung up, as it were, on all these various sexual mores. After all, those are just things that are done in our body, and we have ascended to a greater degree of spiritual maturity. In the Corinthian church, those who considered themselves to be particularly spiritual had run so far into the error of antinomianism, but they were living in sins that even the pagans would not tolerate. Now, that's what Paul tells us in the previous chapter. Paul writes this, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Paul is so upset about their behavior, but he uses his apostolic authority and he excommunicates this man on the spot. Put him out of the church. But of course, Paul's only dealing with part of the problem. Because the bigger problem is not the sin of an isolated man. It's rather that the congregation as a whole had at least tolerated his sin. And it seems as you read the letter, many were actually celebrating it. Not that they were necessarily celebrating the sin, but they were celebrating how tolerant they were. But they did not bring judgment upon this man for his gross immorality. As the church in North America increasingly seems to be heading in the same direction, with liberal churches celebrating homosexuality and many evangelical churches giving up on even trying to have church discipline, it's not even something that they view as part of their church anymore. We ought to take heed to see how Paul, that is the Holy Spirit through Paul, deals with these problems that are taking place in Corinth. Critically, please pay attention to what Paul doesn't do. Paul does not say, 
oh, I see you've gotten way too excited about Christian freedom. This is an opportunity for me to give you some more rules to follow. Right? It's not that they got too excited about Christian freedom. And Paul, therefore, doesn't say, here are some more rules. That is not what Paul does. Instead, the apostle brings them back to the first principles of their salvation, that they were bought with a price, that they have been united with Christ, that they have been saved for the glory of God, and as God's people, they have been filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, that, of course, isn't just true about them. That's true about all of you if you're trusting in Jesus Christ right now. And since all these things are true, the question Paul asks is this. How, then, shall you live? In tonight's passage, Paul will be focusing primarily on how we are treating our bodies as Christians. But I think you can see fairly readily that the principles he's dealing with apply not only to our bodies, but to every aspect of our lives. This leads to our four main headings for this evening. First, your body is for the Lord. Second, your body is united with Christ. Third, your body is a temple for the Holy Spirit. And fourth, you were bought at a price. Let me give those to you again. First, your body is for the Lord. Second, your body is united with Christ. Third, your body is a temple for the Holy Spirit. And fourth, you were bought with a price. Now, before we dive into the passage, I need to say just a little bit about the rhetoric that Paul is using here. Um, he's using what's known as a diatribe. And what he's doing is he's taking two slogans that the Corinthians themselves had used. And he's quoting those slogans, and then he's responding to them. Turns out he has two pithy responses to each one of their slogans. If you don't realize that he's quoting their slogans and responding to them, you're going to have difficulty making heads or tails out of the first half of tonight's passage. The two popular slogans in Corinth go like this. First, all things are lawful for me. Right? That's a Corinthian slogan. All things are lawful for me. This was a celebration of their freedom. As spiritually more mature people, they imagined that they could simply do whatever they wanted. All things are lawful for me. Second, Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. Now, please realize, well, that's the slogan. It's not simply a slogan about food. The idea here is, is that your body doesn't really matter. And therefore, you know, if you have physical appetites, you're hungry, eat something. But, you know, if you have sexual appetites, you've been aroused or you're frustrated, well, have sex with whoever you want. That's the idea behind this slogan. You have bodily appetites, just satisfy them. Um, the English Standard Version, for reasons that I can't fathom, um, stops the quotation marks after the word food. Uh, but I'm going to say this quite bluntly. 
that is certainly mistaken. Paul, for reasons that the Christians, um, part of the reason why the Christians in Corinth felt free to do whatever they wanted to do with their bodies is because they imagined that just like the food that they ate, their stomachs, and by extension their bodies, were all going to be destroyed anyway. And that dovetailed nicely into a lot of Greek philosophy. Many Greek philosophers imagined it is the spirit which is eternal, it is the spirit that matters, and in fact it is good to liberate the spirit from the tomb of the body. As we will see, Paul quotes these Corinthian sayings and then in rather pithy ways points out how wrong-headed they actually are. We begin with their claim to radical autonomy, that is, they're a law unto themselves. In verse 12, the Corinthians say, all things are lawful for me. Now, if you don't delve too deeply, that sounds a lot like some of the things the Apostle Paul himself will say elsewhere. And so it's quite possible that these Corinthians who imagine themselves to be mature are thinking Paul would agree with them on this. All things are lawful for me. But if so, they radically misunderstand the apostles' own vision for Christian freedom. After all, Paul begins almost every one of his letters by saying, Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ. For for Paul, um, Christian freedom was not identified as being able to do whatever I want, It was being identified as being free to do whatever Christ wants. For Paul, Christian freedom means freedom from guilt, freedom from the power of sin, freedom from the fear of death, and freedom from man-made rules. But this freedom is to be used for the good of our neighbors and for the glory of Jesus Christ. The Corinthians were claiming a freedom to be selfish, Paul is claiming a freedom to be useful. The Corinthians say, all things are lawful for me. Paul responds, but not all things are helpful. Now, Paul does not specify helpful to whom. Uh, In the broader context, this must at least include helpful to other people. right? Paul says, look, all things might be lawful, or many things are lawful. He certainly wouldn't say all things. Um, But that doesn't mean they're going to help advance the kingdom of God and bless my neighbors. That is, there are a lot of things that we can do that don't fit with the two great commandments. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Um, This is probably the primary focus of Paul's words. But the apostle may may be including the fact that not all things are helpful to the person who is doing them. In fact, this is the idea that Paul explains in his next pithy saying. The Corinthians say, all things are lawful for me. Paul responds, but I will not be dominated by anything. Makes me think of a very challenging saying of our Lord and Savior. Jesus tells us, truly, truly, I say to you, 
Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. But slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. That, that is, people often sin and say, look how free I am. Unlike you Christians, I get to do whatever I want. And Jesus says, no, actually, when you run off doing everything you want, you're demonstrating that you're bound to your sinful ways of life and to pleasing your own flesh. Now, in fact, it's possible to be enslaved to all manner of things, including activities that are perfectly fine in themselves. Um, do you play video games? That's fine. Little amusement? I guess it depends on the game, but a little amusement? That's fine. But if you go throughout your day dreaming about video games, if when you get home you want to play video games instead of loving your wife, taking care of your family, meditating upon God's word, playing video games has gone from being something that's perfectly permissible as a Christian to something that you are in fact in bondage to. At some point you have to start saying, I'm no longer playing the video games, they're playing me. I've become addicted to them. And of course, that can take place with anything else in your life. I mean, perhaps you enjoy investing. That's a perfectly good thing to do. Um, but if you spend all your time thinking about stocks and bonds and real estate, particularly if you're not a professional investor and it's absorbing your life, you are taking something that you enjoyed doing that might have been helpful for your finances, that you're now becoming in bondage to it. It's dominating your life in a way that Christ doesn't want for his people. Even in those areas which truly are lawful for us, it is important that we do not allow mere things or pleasurable activities to become that which drives our life. One of the finest New Testament scholars in the world, Richard Hayes, points out, the danger is particularly great that the person seeking to exercise freedom through promiscuous sexual activity will end up as a slave to passion. That, that's totally true. Illicit sexual activity is the major problem that Paul was addressing, but we would be wise to realize that these principles apply to every area of our lives. As we celebrate our freedom in Christ, and beloved brothers, we ought to celebrate our freedom in Christ, we must remind ourselves that not all things are useful, and we are not to come under the bondage of anything or anyone other than Jesus Christ. This leads rather naturally to the fact that your body is intended for the Lord. First question answered the catechism. Anyone knows anything about the catechism? We all know the answer to this. Non-Presbyterians know the answer to this. What is man's chief end? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Okay, just shift that a little bit. What is the chief end of your body? Well, it's the same thing. The chief end of your body, the chief purpose of your body, is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. The Corinthians, and I mean those in the Corinthian church, not just those out in the port, they didn't get this. Their slogan was, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, 
And God will destroy both one and the other. Now, the first thing I just have to mention again, because most of you, like me, are using the English Standard Version, is the quotation from the Corinthians doesn't end at food. It ends with destroy both one and the other. Uh, Translators sometimes have difficulty. You might be wondering how you get quotation marks wrong. Well, there are no quotation marks in Greek, right, in ancient Greek. So when they're translating ancient Greek, they have to use other textual clues to know where to end the quotation marks. Here, however, in spite of the generally fine English standard version trying to prove me wrong, the quotation clearly continues through God will destroy both one and the other. The entire argument of the passage is based on the fact that the Corinthians are saying, The body's disposable, it's going away. And Paul, by contrast, is saying your body is of eternal significance and the Lord will raise it up again, right? So that means that the quotation has to be, the negative part, as it were, about God destroying both the food and the stomach must be the Corinthians' comment that Paul is responding to. Now, once we see that, the apostle's argument falls neatly into place. The Corinthians say, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. Paul's first response is to make an application of this to the problem they have, which is sexual immorality. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. See, Almighty God has already demonstrated his concern for the body by raising Jesus from the dead. That was one of the things that was a stumbling block to some of the Greek philosophers when they first heard the gospel. Because they thought being freed from the body was good. And now we're talking about the Messiah who's triumphed in history and we're saying, no, the body is good. Christ's body is good. God has proven who he is by raising him bodily from the dead. And Almighty God has made that same promise about you, that you too one day will be raised from the dead with Christ and you will have glorified bodies forever. This is Paul's second point. The Corinthians say, food is for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. Paul responds, the God who raised the Lord will also raise us up by his power. See, the body is not simply a husk to be cast off in the next life. The gospel of Jesus Christ proclaims that we are redeemed body, soul, and spirit. Jesus redeems the whole man. And this is not only about what the Lord will do for you in the future, Christ is chosen to unite with your body right now. Look at verses 15 through 17 with me. See, when Christ united with you, he didn't unite with a part of you. It's not like Christ united with your brain or your spirit and left your body out of the equation. So Paul writes, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make the members of a prostitute? Never, or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? 
For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. See, Christ redeemed us in part by uniting with us. He identified fully with us. Through the Holy Spirit, we have been united with Christ permanently. Think how ungrateful it then is to realize that everywhere you go and everything you do, you bring Christ with you to drag the Christ who redeemed you through the mud of your own sinful activities in your body. It is not sophisticated or spiritual to pretend that what we do in our bodies doesn't matter. As we confess with the Heidelberg Catechism, my only hope in life and death is that I am not my own, but I belong body and soul to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, if your body belongs to Christ, when you engage in sexual sins, you are not only engaged in an act of infidelity with Christ, to Christ, you are also taking something that belongs to Christ. I belong body and soul to Christ. I would be taking something that belongs to Christ and linking it in the sphere of the unholy. See, the Lord, um, when he designed sexual relations, he created them with a unitive function so that when a husband and wife come together and have sexual relations, it does more than give them pleasure. It does more, actually, than simply create uh, the means by which the human race procreates. God designed this activity so that it would unite the husband and wife together. This is a good and beautiful reality. However, when this design for sexual relations is abused, the unitive function doesn't simply go away. Rather, in some way, we end up being united with the person that we're engaging in sexual sins with. The Corinthians, like many people in our own day, have sought to reduce sexual relations to a passing physical activity. But our debased minds cannot undo God's design. When a Christian engages in fornication, he or she in some way is becoming united with the person they are sinning with. And if they are truly Christians, they are dragging Christ into the sinful relationship with them. The very thought of that ought to turn us back in horror. I only want to say here, because as we talk about these very weighty matters that Paul is bringing to our attention in Corinth, that may stir up in some of you a sense of guilt as you consider past sins in your life. Please remember that Christ, your Redeemer, is greater than your sin. In Christ you have been washed whiter than snow. Right? This is not a sentence to carry around with you for your entire life but it ought to motivate us to live differently going forward to the glory of God. As Paul says in verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Don't try to negotiate with it. Don't try to figure out the right balance that you can strike with your sin. The Holy Spirit is commanding us to flee from sexual immorality. Let me start by saying that we should all acknowledge the power of sexual temptations. 
I mean those of us who are older, right? So you don't need to look at other people and be judgmental about them falling into sin. There is a profound power to sexual temptations, and we live in a culture and a society that is bombarding people with them. Yet, whether or not Paul intended this contention, it's difficult for me to not think of Joseph literally fleeing from the wife of his master, right, the wife of Potiphar, leaving his cloak in her arms. He knew he had to get away, and so he fled from her. Beloved, this is not just for Joseph. This is not just for young people, so we can tell teenagers today, this is something that you need to do. This is the word of Almighty God for every person in this room. Flee sexual immorality. Even if other people imagine that you're being foolish by doing so. That last line about sinning against his own body is frankly a bit difficult to flesh out. Perhaps it's the unitive principle of sex which makes sexual sins so destructive. Uh, the Christian church has sometimes been accused of being obsessed with sexual sins. I don't want to say that sometimes that accusation is just. Uh, we, we, we can easily ignore some of the gross sins that the Bible makes a great deal about, like covetousness and greed and envy, because frankly, they're fairly popular in America. Uh, we're, we're already heading back into another political cycle, and I assure you that many of the candidates will actually be running on covetousness, envy, and greed, telling you, look at that rich person over there. That's wrong. You should have their wealth. But, while that's true that we sometimes don't make a big enough deal about these sins, the Bible itself makes a great deal about sexual sins. In fact, Paul's point here is, there is something specially destructive about sexual sins that are worse than most other sins. Look at verse 19 with me. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? It is vital for us to grasp that Paul is not saying Make sure you live pure lives, because if you are pure enough, the Holy Spirit might come and live in the pure house that you are making. That is not how the gospel works. What the Apostle Paul is saying is if you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit is already living in you. It's not an achievement. The Holy Spirit is already living in you, and therefore that ought to change the way that you live. Christians have already received the Holy Spirit entirely as a gift of God's free grace. Now, in light of the fact that you have been filled with the Holy Spirit, a living stone in the temple of God, you ought to take care regarding what you do with your body. We do not discipline our bodies because we are seeking to live austere lives. We discipline our bodies because God himself has come to make his home in us. Now, oddly enough, if you hear the expression today that so-and-so thinks that their body is a temple, they're not talking about God at all. That expression has come to mean that they're very careful about the foods that they eat. You see, Paul here is not writing about how much bacon you eat. He's writing about your holiness, not your physical health. 
Paul's not encouraging us to value the body for itself. The Christian view of the body is far less concerned with whether or not you eat ice cream this evening or a kale salad, uh, although eventually some of those things will help you to live longer. The point isn't the view of the body in terms of physical health, but holiness. Since the Holy Spirit dwells within you, you ought in response to God's astonishing prior grace to seek to use your body for holy purposes. This is a necessary and organic response to the fact that you have been redeemed by Jesus Christ. So Paul continues, you are not your own. It's the very opposite of I am the captain of my fate, right? You are not your own. For you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Well, maybe I skipped over that a bit too fast. You are not your own. Is that good news or bad news? Well, it's really bad news if you're set on living your own selfish life. Because God's saying you can't do it. It's also the case that if you have sold yourself to sin, if you have voluntarily chosen to come under bondage to the elemental things of this world, but then it's really bad news that you are not your own. But to be a bond slave of Jesus Christ is the best thing that can ever happen to us. Christ has purchased us out of slavery, out of the slavery to Satan, sin, and death, and he has set us free to live with him and for him forever. This has fairly obvious ramifications for how we live and how we live in our bodies. Uh, you know, if you go out this week and you buy a beautiful new car, you're not going to bring it and use it as a backstop in a baseball game. Right? You're not going to do that. You want to protect your car from baseballs. If you go out and buy a beautiful piece of artwork this week, you're not going to hang it up at home and use it for a dartboard. That the fact that you have paid so much for this thing because you consider it valuable means you're going to care for it. You're going to protect it. And yet you were ransomed from feudal, the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Beloved, the fact that you were redeemed at the cost of Christ's own life and that we are now filled with the Holy Spirit ought to change the way that we live this week. Your body is for the Lord. Your body is united with Christ. Your body is a temple for the Holy Spirit. And you were bought at a price. We are now the Lord's own treasured possession, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. By his grace, may that be reflected in the way that each of us lives in the week and the weeks ahead. Amen.